Well, good morning, Sailorville Church, and uh, Merry Christmas. Okay, if I say that this morning? We are, yeah, of course, yeah. We are uh, two and a half weeks away from Christmas Day. That is um, 17 days, 408 hours, 24,480 minutes. And so if you're a woman, you've got your Christmas shopping done already, probably weeks ago. And if you're a man, you have... 24,480 minutes to get it done. Amen, right? <laughs> we, uh, we love Christmas in our family. We love the decorations and uh, the music, and we put up our lights actually on the outside of the house, on the gutters and stuff. We do that uh, about the middle of October. So before Halloween, we put up Christmas lights. Uh, in fact, our neighbors were standing at the end of the driveway the day that we were doing that, and uh, they were all laughing at us and calling us names and all the rest of that. But I'm going to have the last laugh, because while I am sitting inside uh, drinking hot chocolate and cuddled up by the fire and not watching Hallmark movies, those guys are going to be up putting their lights up in uh, sub-zero temperatures. So I get the last laugh on the Christmas lights. We, uh, we were listening to Christmas music the other day, and it made me think about all of the kids' programs and pageants and plays that happen this time of year. In fact, we have one this next Sunday evening right here at Sailorville where we get to see a bunch of our kids and others singing songs and just kind of that family atmosphere. We love those, don't we? We were singing some of those Christmas carols, and I was thinking about when I was a little boy and on stage, that tiny little stage singing Christmas carols, just like this one. Maybe you're familiar. Sing it with me. We'll put the words up. We three kings of glory and tar, bearing gifts we travis afar. You don't know that one? That's how I was singing it when I was a kid. I could never figure out why there were three kings and why they were covered in tar and how Travis had anything to do with the Christmas story. But what I did know was that I was supposed to sing really loud, and, uh, and so I did. We get those things mixed up, don't we? But actually, that song leads us to our passage this morning, believe it or not. It comes from the New Testament book of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And it's a familiar story in a sense, but in a sense, it's not. We're in our second week of a brand new Advent series here at Sailorville called Emmanuel, God with us. I just stop for a second and think about that. That's a, that's a mind-blowing idea, that the Creator God, the all-holy King of the universe, the totally separate, the completely perfect God would come to earth to live with us. Isn't that amazing? To walk around in the dirt and the dust that He used to create man in the first place, to be one of us, but still to be completely different than us. Charles Wesley, in that hymn that we sang a couple minutes ago, Hark the Herald Angels, said, said it this way, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We can see him because now he's got flesh on. Hail the incarnate deity, the deity, the God with flesh, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. That's amazing. The writer of John put it this way later on in the New Testament, the word would become flesh and to dwell with us or to take up residence with us. That he, Jesus, would move into our neighborhood knowing what kind of neighbors we would be. <laughs> Have you ever moved into a house and not realized what kind of neighbors you were moving in next to? Jesus didn't do that. 
He knew exactly what kind of neighbors we would be. He never, he never came to the place where he was on earth thinking, oh my goodness, what did I do? I made a giant mistake. What did I get myself into? These neighbors are crazy. This guy across the road puts up his lights before Halloween. Jesus never did that. He moved into our neighborhood knowing exactly what he was doing. In fact, the gospel writers all throughout the New Testament are pretty clear that Jesus' mission was to glorify his father God by becoming a man. And in doing so, to live a perfect life, and then to die a sacrificial death, and then to be raised to life, appearing to hundreds and leaving the Holy Spirit with us as a comfort and as a source of encouragement and power. And now he's gone back to heaven to prepare his home to be a home for us one day. Isn't that an amazing concept? Jesus preparing his home to one day be our home. Wow. Matthew, the writer of the first book in our New Testament, focuses intentionally on presenting this Jesus as King, King Jesus, not only to his original Jewish readers, but also to the whole world. And so with this specific focus, Matthew's the only one of the four gospel writers who shares this story of the visit of the wise men, or as some of your Bibles may translate it, the Magi. And on one level, as I said, the text, the story is really familiar. But most of what we think we know about these wise men is actually just tradition. It's come from songs and from Christmas plays and from TV shows and movie specials. The Bible actually doesn't say that there were only three of them, right? That number comes from the number of gifts, gold and myrrh, and one that Frank has sent. <laughs> Would you let the third service know I'm going to do that so that when it comes time, they laugh? The first service was supposed to pass that on to you. We missed that. Matthew 2 makes it clear that the Magi found Jesus in a house in Bethlehem. He wasn't still in the stable where he was born. So they actually, these wise men, arrived sometime after Christ's birth. Maybe a few days, could have been a few weeks, even up to two years. But Matthew's point, and actually God's point in the rest of the Bible, isn't to answer all of our questions. It's to point us to Jesus. So God's intentionally leaving out details that we might want to know so that we might be pointed to his son Christ. And in this story, the way God does that is to show us three different responses to the arrival of his son, King Jesus. In fact, one author that I read said it this way, what makes Matthew's story so beautiful and so important is that all the little details are left out of the picture in order that the full emphasis may be placed on this one thing. The response to King Jesus' birth. And so this morning, we're just going to ask a very simple question. I'm going to ask it of myself. We'll ask it of each other. And as we leave, I want you to remember this question. How have you responded to King Jesus? How have you personally responded to King Jesus? So let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, where we meet these wise men right away. This is what Matthew says. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Let's stop there. So we're immediately thrust into the scene that happens in Jerusalem sometime within the first two years of Jesus' life. And we're introduced to these wise men, magi. They're called magi from the east. And that's actually all that we know about them from this passage, pretty much. 
The term magi, we do know, is a Persian word that referred to a special class of ancient priests or politicians, uh, professors, even philosophers in the Persian Empire. These guys were deeply influential, incredibly smart, and highly academic, noble men, in a sense. They were trained in medicine, in history, in theology, in religion, in prophecy, and, of course, in astronomy. So astronomy being the science of the study of the stars, how many stars, how old they are, where they should be in the sky, how far apart they are from other stars, that kind of stuff. So they had a pretty good idea of where the stars would be and what they should look like, and that comes into play in our story here this morning, doesn't it? By the way, when you picture these wise men, what do you see in your mind? I know what I saw. Even before reading this passage, my guess is that it's something like this. Three men in fancy robes and goofy-looking hats riding three camels silhouetted against the night sky, right? Something like that, sort of silently and slowly making their way on those camels to Jerusalem. Actually, it's probably more likely that the wise men traveled with the whole entourage. It was a thousand miles from Persia to Israel, and hardly anybody would have risked that long of a trip by themselves. And so these men brought a big group. They were influential. They were highly educated, esteemed, and wealthy. So they wouldn't have traveled alone. In fact, most scholars believe that they would have at least had a military escort. They brought people with them and all the servants and everything that went along. So these guys had a crowd along with them as they traveled across the wilderness. Probably more like 300 people rather than the three on camels that we have in our mind. I was thinking this last week, it probably looked a little bit like this. Prince Ali riding into Agrabah on top of an elephant or a camel or whatever that is he's on. There's people blowing trumpets. They're singing songs. The the soldiers are swinging their swords around. They're going bananas for this guy. Now, I don't know if it looked like that, but it was a lot closer to that probably than the picture that we have in our mind of three dark, shadowy figures just sort of slowly, secretly making their way across the desert. So why did these wise men travel a thousand miles? This treacherous, arduous, dangerous journey over field and fountain, moor and mountain? The answer is really very, very simple, strikingly simple. What moved them to make this difficult journey is that they had come to see the baby born king of the Jews. It's fascinating. Think about what the wise men knew. They knew that there was a baby that had been born. They didn't know exactly where or when. They knew that this baby was a king, but they didn't know his name. And they knew that Jerusalem was the capital city, the social, the economic, the religious center of the entire Jewish nation. And so they show up with their entourage, their parade in Jerusalem, and they start asking questions. Obviously, people would have known in Jerusalem where the king was born, right? Think about this. The Magi are Gentiles, non-Jewish people who've been drawn to Jesus. So let's pause here for just a moment. These guys hardly knew anything about Christ. They'd seen a star. They knew a baby called King of the Jews had been born. And yet with nothing more than that, they risked everything that they had and they left their homeland to find a baby, bring him gifts, and then to worship him. I think this is one of the greatest examples of faith in the entire Bible. The wise men knew so very little about Jesus, but they acted on what they knew, didn't they? Okay, so now we're introduced to another character. His name is King Herod. 
A little context here. This guy is a real trip, right? Someone compared him with a, sort of a mashup of Game of Thrones and the Jerry Springer show. This was his life, King Herod. I read an author this last week that said, Herod's story reads like a cheap paperback novel that you'd pick up from the thrift store. <laughs> this guy was loony. He ruled over Judea on behalf of Rome as sort of as a governor. The Roman Senate actually had given him the title King of the Jews, but he wasn't a Jew at all. He wasn't born Jewish. And so you can imagine how his Jewish subjects felt about him. History tells us that he had at least 10 wives and 12 sons, but a whole lot of them he had killed, executed, murdered because of his jealousy and his rage and just plain paranoia. In fact, one story goes like this. When Herod would leave Judea on a dangerous journey, he would send instructions that several respected Jewish leaders should be killed if Herod himself was to die while he was gone. Why would he do this? Because he knew that his Jewish subjects would never mourn his death, but they would mourn the death of their own. So at least somebody would be crying when Herod died. He's a maniac, a killer, and some called him a barbaric dictator. So when the wise men from the east arrive in Jerusalem in all their pomp and circumstances, and they, are, they announce that they're looking for a baby who was born king of the Jews, you better believe Herod reacted. Look at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, that the baby had been born king of the Jews, he was, what's the word? Troubled. Circle that word or underline it, highlight it. That means he was shaking. He was petrified. Herod and all Jerusalem, they're literally trembling in their boots. They are so afraid. A Jewish baby born of noble lineage, this could be a huge threat to Herod's throne. He was, after all, the imposter king of the Jews, wasn't he? And Herod isn't just cruel, he's also cunning. So he comes up with a plan that he believes would lead him right to this baby king of the Jews. He resorted to doing what he had done successfully so many times before when he was faced with a problem. He tried to simply eliminate it. So look at what he does in verse 4. Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. These are all the religious leaders, the smarty guys. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And so we've got the wise men, the magi, we've got King Herod, and now Matthew introduces us to a third set of characters in this story, and it's the religious leaders. So Herod pretends to be interested in helping the wise men find the Christ child, so he turns to his most trusted religious leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, for advice, and he has only one question for them. Where is this child to be born? It's a good question. Very simple, isn't it? And the scribes didn't have to look it up. They already knew the answer. From their earliest years, they had known. Of course they did. The chief priests and the scribes were the religious elite of the day. They were the smartest guys in the known world when it came to Old Testament. They'd been spending most of their days reading and studying and memorizing and debating Scripture. Some of them knew the first five books of the, of the Old Testament by heart. They memorized it. The point is that these guys knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. They knew it cold. Jerusalem had the smartest Bible scholars in the world. And so when Herod asked, where is the Messiah going to be born? They, of course, knew the answer immediately. 
And they even quote the Old Testament prophet Micah from 700 years earlier. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. This is a no-brainer. Little kids learned this as they were growing up. Teenagers had the prophecies memorized. Parents were instructed to teach their kids from the Old Testament. They would have known this. It wasn't new truth at all. And yet, catch this. The religious leaders, the ones who should have known better, are a picture of absolute apathy, indifference. They knew the truth, but they couldn't be bothered to respond to the truth. So for Herod, the scribe's answer is all the information he needs. He's more convinced than ever that he's, he's got to do something about this baby born in Bethlehem. So he ratchets up his plan. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, catch this now, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So hold on a minute. Now all of a sudden, Herod, who was trying to get rid of the king, opposed him at least, ignored him, is now really interested in him. This sounds amazing. Herod's had a change of heart, hasn't he? Now he wants to worship the king. Spoiler alert. He doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to kill him. In fact, in a couple verses, verse 13 of the same chapter, an angel of the Lord comes to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, and says, hey, King Herod is going to leave no stone unturned before he destroys Jesus. And that's the word. Herod was not playing games here. He was cunning and cruel. In fact, a few verses after that, Herod flies into a fit of rage, and he kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem and that surrounding region who were two years old and younger. More about that next week. So what about these wise men? Look at verse 9. What do they do? After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, when it, when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so now we come to the last little part of our story this morning, it's the part that these wise men are probably most known for. The star appears again, and this time it comes to rest over the house where Jesus was. And look at how they respond. Look at how they react. Look at what they do when they're pointed to Jesus. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They could hardly keep it in. The language there means that they were so happy they couldn't stop rejoicing that they couldn't stop being excited about meeting King Jesus. Why? Because their entire journey had led them to this moment. God, through this mysterious and miraculous star, had guided them to the exact place where they would meet the Christ child. After a thousand miles and what was probably a year's journey and 400 years of prophetic silence, finally these Gentile men, these outsiders, were about to see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine that moment? Let's read it in verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. And here's the gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here we have these noble men from Persia, doing what one day all men 
and women will do. They fall down literally on their faces and worship King Jesus. Literally, they are in humility laying in front of King Jesus, worshiping him. By the way, not worshiping his mother, worshiping King Jesus right there at his feet. And the wise men give to Jesus what should only be given to Jesus, their absolute and utter worship. And part of their worship was to offer King Jesus tangible expressions of that worship, tangible expressions of their faith. And so here before Mary, the wise men present gifts to the baby boy. And here, here, here we see a, a glimmer of their faith. We have a picture in our minds of these small little boxes, maybe, maybe something that looks like a Christmas present, or maybe a little jar, the gold and the frankincense and myrrh that they could have put on the back of a camel or so, but it's more likely that the wise men brought treasure chests full of these expensive and elaborate gifts. Here's a bunch of men meeting Jesus for the very first time. This last week I read somewhere that if they had been women, wise women instead of wise men, it would have been a different story. Because women would have arrived on time. They would have asked for directions. Right? They would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned up the stable. They would have brought a casserole. They would have stopped at the Target to get the registry gifts, like diapers and wipes and bottles and formula. It would have been a whole different story if it were wise women and not wise men, right? But these wise men show incredible humility as they bow before King Jesus and offer him Gifts, But they are strange gifts, aren't they? I mean, why would you give a baby treasure chests full of gold and frankincense, whatever that is, and myrrh? Well, we see the faith of these wise men. They brought gifts that symbolized who Jesus was and who he would become. They weren't there just to give presents to a baby. They were there to worship the Messiah, their king. Gold representing the majesty and the power that comes with royalty, with nobility. What else do you give a king other than treasures full of gold, treasures made of pure gold? And so they offer him gold. They offer him frankincense, a white or milky kind of oil that's used in temple worship. And so this gift pointed to Jesus as Lord, the one that they were to worship, the only one worthy of worship. And then myrrh, a sort of perfume made from the leaves of a certain kind of rose bush. It was used to anoint dead bodies and prepare them for burial. In fact, John chapter 13, uh, 19, verse 39 tells us that Jesus' dead body was prepared with 75 pounds of linen wrapped around aloe and myrrh as he was being prepared to lay in the grave. And so myrrh pictures his humanity, his one day suffering and death. Gold for his majesty, frankincense for his deity, and myrrh for his humanity. And my goodness, we need all three of those, don't we? These are some gifts that these guys give to the baby Jesus. My son's getting Legos this Christmas. It's on a whole different level. So three different sets of characters, 
Three different sets of responses. First of all, Herod ignored and even opposed, tried to eliminate King Jesus. His religious leaders, the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they were indifferent to King Jesus, maybe even apathetic. And then the wise men we see were seeking King Jesus to intentionally fall down in front of him and to worship him. And so the question we're asking this morning is, which one are you? Who do you identify more with, Herod? The religious leaders? perhaps the wise men. And our question is this, how have you responded to King Jesus? How have you responded to King Jesus? Are you ignoring him? Can you identify with Herod? Remember, he's the crazy king who, who couldn't handle the thought of anything or anyone sitting on his throne. You might say, come on, man, I'm not like Herod. That guy was nuts. I'm not worried about someone or something sitting on the throne of my life. Really? Think about how you acted and reacted this week. When things didn't go well, when you didn't have control over a situation, how did you react? What did you think first when your reputation, your name was being dragged through the mud by one of your coworkers? What did you want to do? Or when you couldn't have power or do what you wanted to do or you couldn't buy what you wanted to buy or you couldn't go where you wanted to go or you couldn't be as comfortable as you wanted to be, what did you think first? How did you react? How did you respond in that moment? Who was on the throne of your life? Can I be transparent with you? God allowed some things to happen in my life this last week that were completely out of my control, that I didn't have power over, and that I would never have chosen if I were in power, <laughs> and I did not react well. There's a little bit of Herod in all of us, isn't there? Here's something interesting about Herod. As long as the baby born in Bethlehem was just being reported as the Savior, Herod doesn't seem to be interested. In fact, as far as we can tell, it hasn't even registered with him that a Savior has been born as long as this baby's just going to be the savior, see, Herod could just keep ignoring him. But as soon as the wise men come to him and say that there's a king of the Jews that has been born, well, now all of a sudden Herod is interested. Now he begins to react. As long as the baby in Bethlehem isn't a threat, there's no action that Herod takes, either to explore the reports out of curiosity or to search for the savior for salvation. However, the moment that it appears as this baby may be a ruler, Oh, all of a sudden, Herod reacts, doesn't he? A baby he could ignore. A king he had to recognize. But here's the truth. We're all just a little bit like Herod, aren't we? We want Jesus to be a good moral teacher, a religious leader even. But the moment we realize Jesus wants authority in our lives, that he is king and he's the only one who can rightfully sit on the throne of our lives, well, hold on, that's another story. Wait just a minute, Jesus. I mean, I'm good if you want to be that little baby that we sing about at Christmas. I'm good if we put little baby Jesus in the nativity scene. I'm all right with that. I'm all, I'm all right with coming to church even a couple more times around this season. But now that you're saying you want to be king of my life, that you actually want to call the shots, that you want to rule my world, that you want to direct my decisions, hold on just a second. I'm not in for that. Jesus is king. Kanye West has it right. <laughs> Pastor and I have a competition to see how many times we can say Kanye West from the stage. He's beating me. 
There may be some listening this morning who say, I know the stories about Jesus. I get it. It's Christmas. I sing the songs. It's all about hope. It's all about love. It's all about peace. I'm good with baby Jesus. You may be good with baby Jesus, but are you good with King Jesus? Look at how King Jesus later would respond to the religious rulers of his day that said, what do we need to be What do we need to do to be good with God? Just give us the checkbox that we need to check off. He says in Matthew chapter 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus isn't just talking about checkbox religion here. He's saying you need to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. That's how you respond to King Jesus. Paul picked up on that in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's King, that's Master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and with the mouth and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And catch this, Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It doesn't matter where you come from this morning, how many times you've been in church, what you have memorized, everyone who believes in him will be saved. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. That's King Jesus. And I'm asking you this Christmas, will you recognize Jesus as King or will you do everything you can to ignore him? Call on the name of the Lord, as Paul said, and you will be saved. Now here's a great irony in this story. Herod ignored King Jesus. But Jesus is king whether you recognize his authority or not. He is king. He is on the throne. He will be worshipped. You just get to choose. I just get to choose whether I live a life of worship on this side of eternity or on that side of eternity. All will worship him one day. Don't you want to do it now? Submit to him today. And enjoy the abundant life that comes with living under the authority of the gracious king. Are you ignoring him? Trying to shove him to the side this Christmas? Or maybe you're indifferent to him. Maybe you're just plain apathetic. Maybe you identify a little more with the religious leaders in this story. They knew the truth. They'd studied the Bible. They'd attended church every single week. They had the verses memorized. They had their name in the front of their scroll. They had the perfect attendance award. On the outside, these guys were a picture of commitment, of devotion, of doing the right thing. They had everything that they needed to respond to the coming of King Jesus. Think about that. They needed nothing else. They had everything they needed. But they were so wrapped up in themselves that they didn't even recognize it when Jesus came so close and yet so far. Now watch this. Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem. Did you know that? Six miles from where the religious leaders were. So close that you could walk it in an afternoon. Today, Bethlehem's like a suburb of Jerusalem. Back in that day, people would have gone back and forth from Bethlehem to, to Jerusalem to buy and sell, to trade, to spend time in the temple. It was an easy journey on good roads. Six miles isn't very far. I know because I Googled it. From right here where we are, you know what's six miles south? Wells Fargo Arena. You know what's six miles north-ish? Dunkin' Donuts. Takes about 10 minutes by car, and maybe just a couple hours if you want to walk it. Six miles. 
Six miles, and none of the scribes cared enough to go and check out the rumor that the long-awaited Messiah had been born. Six miles from Jesus. Six miles from salvation. Six miles from forgiveness. Six miles from eternal life and a life abundant, full, and overflowing. Now in this world that comes along with serving Jesus, six miles so close and yet so very far. They were so busy gaining knowledge and proving how much that they knew, they forgot to apply that knowledge. Religion without relationship. Truth without transformation. Facts without faith. Is that you? Maybe you're here this morning and you know the verses. Maybe you're sitting in the exact row that you've sat in for weeks or months or even years. Maybe you have the knowledge. You've done the Bible studies. You've read the books. You grew up here in church or a church like Sailorville. You're so close but you've never taken that step of faith to embrace Jesus, to embrace Jesus. Not to embrace religion, but to embrace Jesus. You're so close, but yet so far. And I think if King Jesus were here today, he would say, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the religious rulers that, that in Jesus' life he called whitewashed tombs. Oh, they were looking great on the outside. They were dressed really nice on Sunday morning, but on the inside, they smelled of death. Don't be like them. King Jesus came so that you and I can have more than external religion. He came so that we might have a relationship with him. And friends, stop going through the motions and go all in for King Jesus. The scribes knew so much, yet they wouldn't even go six miles down the road. The wise men, on the other hand, knew so very little, and they came a thousand miles to meet Jesus. Are you ignoring King Jesus? Are you indifferent to King Jesus? Or maybe you identify with the wise men, and you're here this morning, and you're seeking him. You're desperately trying to follow him. You want to worship him. Maybe you say, I'm like the wise men here today. I'm looking for answers to life's biggest questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? What's next? You're searching. God told the Old Testament Israelites this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with your heart, all your heart, and with all of your soul. Later on in the New Testament in James chapter 4, Jesus would tell New Testament saints just like us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you're seeking him, he will find you. And when these wise men at the end of a long, long journey finally met Jesus, they couldn't contain their joy. There is joy when people meet Jesus. We experience that here at Sailorville Church. Oh my goodness, it's amazing, isn't it? God has not forgotten about Sailorville. God has great things in store for Sailorville. God is doing great things in and among our church in this community. We had kids get saved this last semester at Good News Club in a public school. What? We had middle schoolers get saved at youth group. What? That happens. We had two high school girls this last week give their faith to Jesus. To open up their hands and say, God, you got it all. And guess what one of their small groups did? A group of high school girls, after this young lady got saved, 
They showed great joy. They came around her. They like mobbed her. They were dancing. They were circling her. They were going crazy. There's great joy when women respond to rejoice last night to the gospel message. There's great joy. The Magi's joy led to worship, and their worship led to sacrifice. They gave King Jesus their best because nothing else is good enough, right? And so this Christmas... One of the little sub-questions of the story is, what will you give Jesus? This Christmas, will you give Jesus your life? Is this the year that you finally open up your heart and say, God, it's all yours. God, I get the little baby Jesus. I get the nativity scene Jesus. I get all the gifts and stuff. But God, I want it to be more than just that. I want to celebrate the real reason for this season. I'm going to give it all to you. Is this the year when you finally open up your hands and say, King Jesus, it's all yours? Has Jesus asked you to do something and you just don't want to do it? Maybe he's asked you to step outside your comfort zone and take a step of faith and tell someone about your relationship with Christ and you're reluctant to do it or indifferent? Maybe this is the year when that happens. Is this the year when you join a small group or you commit to waking up early in the morning and spending time with King Jesus in his word and in prayer? Is this the year when you commit to living generously or commit to serving sacrificially? Or men, is this the Christmas when you finally commit to leading your wife and your family and yourself to be more like Jesus? Is this the year? Why not? It's King Jesus we're talking about. Why not? What is it that's keeping you from actually putting Jesus on the throne of your life? Is it control? I got to have control. Is it comfort? I don't like to be uncomfortable. Fear? Oh, what will Jesus do with my life? That kind of scares me. Reputation? Can I be honest with you? You know which one of those I struggle with? All of them. <laughs> Anything that takes the place of Jesus on the throne of my life is an idol. And so imagine for just a second if we responded the way the wise men did. What would Sailorville Church be like? What would your cell group be like? What would your family be like if we responded by seeking the Lord and falling down in front of him and worshiping him? Not just Sundays, but every single day. King Jesus came. Some ignored him. Some were apathetic. And some worshiped him. What will you do? with King Jesus this Christmas. Lord, thank you for being Lord, for being Master. Oh, Lord, we need you. We may not even know that this morning, but we need you. God, help us, if we are like Herod, to stop ignoring you. One day you will not be ignored, and Lord, we get to choose to follow you now. Lord, help us if we've been indifferent, if we know everything there is to know, we think, and yet we haven't acted on it. Lord, help us to be more like the wise men who went on an amazingly long journey, a treacherous journey. They gave up a whole bunch and gave you everything that they had. Lord, if we need to be more like that this morning, would you give us the faith, give us the courage, Give us the strength to do that. We want to be men and women who worship you. Amen.